Hi, good afternoon. Good evening. How are you doing? It's me, Mama Norman. The lady from two other podcasts named Trap Vintage. Probably the only one named like that. Um, so hopefully nobody copied me because I think I remembered my name like two months ago, three months ago. But whatever. This is uh, my brand new podcast right now. Today will be another episode. And today we're going a little bit deeper in the history of New York. It will be 1788. Medicine and Mobs. By the way, I bought this book on eBay. Um, If you're really interested, there's like a lot of vintage books there and vintage stuff they like sell for cheap and I paid this book like four bucks all of it it has so many stories in it like every day I find something new that I know so maybe you didn't know about it too um, also if you um, share my podcast or if you just listen to my podcast thank you so much um, what I really want or like who I really want here to listen to my podcast is like the people who are interested like in history of New York of the world because sometimes I will find the stories from the world and I'll try to like squeeze it in and I'll try to stay on this um, podcast for right now because um, I don't know I just need to have like a clean slate something better so John Hicks Hadn't meant to start a riot, but even in 1788, he was a medical student that had little opportunity for recreation. So when he saw the boy on the ladder peering into his window as he was dissecting a corpse in New York Hospital, Hicks thought he'd have a little fun. He waved an arm at the boy, an arm just removed from a the female cadaver on the table before him and he shouted this is your mother hand I just dug it up watch out or I'll smack you with it like medical humor the boy fled in terror from the grisly scene overwhelmed with memories of his mother's recent funeral naturally he ran to get his father father I mean a mason working on Broadway and told him what the doctor had shouted. The mason took a few co-workers and, went, and he went to the nearby cemetery. And his wife's grave was really yawning hall. Somebody had dug it up, the body, to the shock and grieving widower. This was proof of persistent rumors of grave robbing by medical students that had made the rounds of New York's taverns that winter. The mason was outraged, his friends at his heels. He set out for New York's hospital. Along the way, the story of the empty grave and the corpse's arm was repeated and amplified to passerby. The small group of men swelled into an angry mob armed with brick bats and flaming torches. It was April 13, 1788. 
the first riot in the new, in new United States of America had begun. The mob encircled the hospital building, howling for the blood of the doctors. As hospital officials attempted to reason with the mob, most of the doctors prudently slipped out rear windows and faded into the gloom of early evening. All except one, Dr. Wright Post, and the three students elected to stay behind. There were irrepre irreplaceable items among them, preserved specimens of internal organs that he wanted to pro protect. Dr. Post and his students barely escaped with their lives. When the sheriff arrived, he took them to jail for safety. The mob gutted the hospital, smashing expensive glassware, ruining surgical instruments, and ripping books and records to shreds. In minutes, the hospital was in ruins, but they were just getting started. At the head of the mob was the still up his friends at his heels. He set out for the New York Hospital. Along the way, the story of the empty grave and the corpse's arm was repeated and amplified to passerby. The small group of men swelled into an angry mob, armed with brick bats and flaming torches. It was April 13, 1788. The first riot in the new United States of America had begun. The mob encircled the hospital building, howling from the, for the blood of the doctors. As hospital officials attempted to reason with the mob, most of the doctors prudently slipped out rear windows and faded into the gloom of early evening. But this doctor, Dr. Wright Post, and three students, they was elected to stay behind. Since there were irreplaceable items among them, preserved specimens of internal organs that he wanted to protect, Dr. Post and his students barely escaped with their lives. When sheriff arrived, he took them to jail for safety. The mob gutted the hospital, smashing expensive glassware, ruining surgical instruments, and ripping books and records to shreds. In minutes, the hospital was in ruins, but they were just getting started. At the head of the mob was the still outraged Mason, whose son had seen John Hicks wave that this disembodied arm Somehow he learned Hicks's name and tracked him out to his hideout, the home of a prominent surgeon. The mob surged through the surgeon's home, hunting Hicks. They rifled through all the rooms, the basement, the kitchen, even the attic. But Hicks had seen and heard the mob. He fled the attic to the roof and leaped to the next roof, hid behind a chimney, and escaped. Frustrated, the mob ran wild to the streets of what is now Lower Manhattan. They were looking for doctors. They were looking for surgeons. They came upon the house of Sir John Temple. He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't a surgeon, but the mob was a largely illiterate bunch. Someone read Temple's neatly lettered name above the door. Sir John. Sir John. Sir John. Sir John. Close enough. Temple's house was all but leveled. In the meantime, most of the city's doctors had departed for less hostile parts. Governor George Clinton 
marvelized the militia. As a new day broke over Manhattan, it seemed the mob had spent its energy. Mayor James Duane heaved a sigh of relief. So far, nobody had been killed, and it looked like the riot was over. He was not over. As the sun rose higher, the mob reassembled in greater numbers than before and converged on Columbia College looking for more medical specimens. Armed and angry men roamed the corridors, smashing doors. Well-dressed passerby were assaulted on suspicion of being doctors. Alexander Hamilton, soon to be Secretary of the Treasury, was at Columbia in mourning. He went out to address the mob to reason with them, to persuade them to go home. The mob listened a while, then they went back to rampaging. By early evening, the only doctors and medical students they could find were those hiding in the city jail. So the mob descended on jail. John Jay, soon to be confirmed as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was looking on. A rock hit him in the head, and he went down, unconscious. Another curious onlooker was Barn Friedrich von Staubin, this hero of a revolution begged Governor Clinton not to let his troops fire on the mob. They were Americans, said um, Steuben. They would respond to reason. Then the mobs surged forward. Payment bricks came flying. One struck one Steuben on the head, reeling and bloody. He now urged Clinton to have a militia open fire at once. Clinton gave the order. Twenty rioters went down. They died where they fell. By morning, exhausted and fearful of more bloodshed, the mob slowly dispersed. The riot was over. Soon after, the New York legislature passed a law allowing medical dissection of the bodies of criminals executed for murder, arson, and burglary. New York Hospital, it was between Wart and Duane Streets just east of Broadway, and today is the site occupied by Federal Plaza, a 45-story office building. Oh, I think I know where that is. Um, I think is uh, what's the name of that thing? City Hall. Um, Columbia College was then situated between Barclay and Moray Streets, west of Church. The offices of the IRS at 100 Church Street now occupy the northern end of the area. But okay. So, well, in um story from yesterday, we learned that um back in the day, it was easily to deceive people, and um like a lot of money would make you make others like trust you easily. And that's how they, um, like, back then, $100 was a lot. So, um, some people really used it to for their advantage to be sadistic pieces of shit. Um, and sadistic killers, you know what I mean? I don't even know how many killers did that man, you know, killed. I mean, children or whatnot. But I, I think on the end, they really capture him, so they kind of find out who... That really was. Thank God. 
you know what I mean? And um, with today's story, literally, mm-mm. wow, just from, from one little boy saying something to his father, they literally messed the whole New York hospital. Yep, is it New York's state's um I'm not quite sure. Wow. So the mob burned the New York Hospital, United States History, Local History and Genealogy Division, the New York Public Library, Astor, Lennox and Tilden Foundations. Wow, awful medicine. Mm-hmm. Wow, and who knows who's who did that really with his wife's body? But look at that, just one thing that he told his dad, and they really believed that kid. Yo, and they had to like kill him. Mm-mm. So, if you stay, I'm gonna have another story for you. One moment. From 1929, so it's 20th century. No way in. Isidore Fink was dead. He was shot twice in the chest, one in his left wrist. His neighbor, Mrs. Lachlan Smith, was awakened by the sounds of a struggle. When she heard the dull thud of the blows, she heard Fink scream. She heard three shots, one after another, in rapid succession. She also heard that something heavy hit the floor, and then Silence. Smith summoned police to the Harlem tenement. When Officer Albert Captain Warren arrived, he found the door to Fink's business establishment, tiny one room hand laundry bolted from the inside. The window was bared, but there was a transom over the door. Oh my goodness, I'm going to sneeze. Oh goodness, excuse me. So Hatterborn hoisted a small boy to his shoulders. The boy pried open the transom, climbed through and dropped to the floor and unbolted the door. Patrol Kattenborn detained the boy and kept everyone out of the room until homicide detectives arrived. They listened, they listened to Smith and to the boy and to Kattenborn. 
to look at the hallway. There was no blood there. Fink's wrist bore powder burns. So the first thought was that, regardless of what Mrs. Smith said she heard, Isidore Fink was a suicide. But if it was, there had to be a gun somewhere in the room. The boy was searched, no gun. The, the room was searched, still no gun. Demon specialists ascended on a crime scene. They tore the room apart. They lifted floorboards, searched for secret wall panels. Still, they found no gun. No, the way in, out of the room, except maybe transom. An inside hinge on it was broken. They couldn't be sure when that had happened. It might have been long before. It could have failed under the weight of the boy Catherine had sent in to open the door. Even so, it was highly unlikely that anyone could have the strength and agility to leap up to the transom, crawl out, drop down aside, and then close the transom all without making any noise. Autopsy was done, and coroner said that Fink had died almost instantly. So he could not have been shot in the hallway before entering the room and locking the door. Police poked through the victim's personal life. Fink, an elderly bachelor, they shared a nearby apartment with an elderly shoemaker. Newspapers also said of the murder that strongly implied that Fink at least was homosexual. He usually kept his laundry open until midnight, fearing robbery. He kept the only window barren and the door bolted. Only those he knew were allowed into the room. But someone had been in the room. Someone who had struggled briefly with Fink and shot him. Someone who did not rob him of the money in his pocket or a larger sum in a cash register. The mystery of the corpse in a locked room has provided food for thought to such writers as Alfred Hitchcock and Ben Head, as well as to dozens of tabloid sensationalists. But to this day, no one knows who killed Isidore Fink or why, except the killer. Uh, Isidore Fink died of 4 East, 132nd Street in Harlem. The original five-story building remains. The ground floor is a busy laundromat that gunmen have held up for more than once. Wow. So, they have heard of this happening even before this thing. What? Oh no, after this crime happened, many times after this address, 4 East 132nd Street in Harlem, yep, the ground floor, and it's a original five-story building. Well, maybe I even passed there, 4 East 
32nd Street. I don't think I know. What's 4 East? What you mean 4 East? Ugh, something missing. <laughs> Oh, number four east, on the east side, 132nd Street. Okay. No, I'm thinking like, what is it close to? But if it's 132nd Street, it must be close to the Lexington. Yeah. So, it's a possibility that I passed there because I lived around 135th Street. Never knew that. Wow, that Harlem is kind of like. Whoa, crazy ass fucking place. At first, I was like, What are they talking about? It's so beautiful, the people are so nice. But then you don't see nobody like in the afternoon and nobody going over there in the afternoon, and especially after nine o'clock. Hear a kitty cry outside. Anyway, got a new story from. From nineteen eleven. Triangle Inferno. A shirtwaist is a woman's blouse cut in a style resembling a man's dress shirt. It was an essential component of the Gibson girl look that dominated women's fashion from the late 19th century until America's entry into World War One. So the manufacture of shirtwaist was a big part of New York's Bergioni ready-to-wear garment industry. It was a cutthroat business, where the line between profit and loss might be a fine as a few pennies per unit. But for manufacturers who succeed, it was often highly profitable. Those who sold garments, wholesale, and retail also did well. The legions of immigrants who worked 12-hour shifts cutting and sewing for a few dollars a week were slaves of the needle. To them, shirtwaists meant mere survival. And barely that, although the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, ILGW, you uh, was organized in 1900 was still impotent impotent against bosses who bought off officials charged with enforcing the few labor laws that existed as well as the annoying safety and sanitation laws this was how max blank and isaac harris owners of triangle shirt waste company could operate under most Draconian conditions that only paid by the peace. They extracted a tax from workers for the privilege of sitting on company owned stools 
and also deducted the cost of needles and other necessities from wages. And if a garment was somehow spoiled, they fined the luckless worker three times its manufacturing cost. As protection against the slowly rising tide of the American labor movement, in 1908, Blank and Harris started a company union. Few workers were deceived. When a few rebellious seamstresses met to discuss join, joining a real union, such as the ILGWU or the, the Union Hebrew Trades, they were fired at once. Blank and Harris defended this, saying that business was bad and the fire workers were surplus to Triangle's needs. Nevertheless, a few days later, they advertised for replacements. Local 25 of the ILGWU said this amounted to a Triangle lookout. They called a strike. Triangle brought in goon squads to trash some sense of the strikers. They hired hookers to mingle with seamstresses. When police arrested picketers, the horse insisted they sold, they sold for a living. The police, who knew otherwise, promptly told the newspapers that the picketers were nothing more than pretentious prostitutes. The course also sided with management. Several strikers were sentenced to prison. One judge told a packed courtroom that the picketers were on strike against God. That remark got back to George Bernard Shaw in London. He cabled the Women's Trade Union League. Delightful, medieval America always in the intimate personal confidence of the Almighty. Now all New Yorkers were indifferent to the plight of those who toil in sweatshops. A coalition of social reformers Primarily wealthy women and conscience-stricken clergy are now support for the strikers. In the compromise that followed, Triangle disbanded the company union and rehired some of the fire workers. None of this seemed to trouble Triangle's business. Through rigged cost control, it had become the nation's largest manufacturer of shirt waste. Triangle occupied the top three floors of the 10-story S building, a brick edifice near Washington Square. In March 1911, business was good. Triangle's 600 workers, most of them adolescent girls, worked full 12-hour shifts six days a week. As 4.30 came and went on Saturday, March 25, the last shift of the week was drawing to a close. The girls, mostly Italian Jewish immigrants, they were preparing to shut down for the weekend. But the Triangle factory was a bomb. Bells of cotton fabric were everywhere. I think bowels of cotton fabric were everywhere beneath cutting tables with bins overflowing with cotton scraps. Flimsy paper patterns hung from a confusion over the overhead wires. Lint and cotton dust filled the air. Scraps of cotton and thread were 
ankle deep around the sewing machines and cutting tables. Sometime after 4.30, the fuse was lit. Probably was a cigarette, but dropped on the floor. Or still a glowing match thrown into a scrap bin. Could have been a hundred other things no one would ever know. But in southeast corner of the eighth floor, a hideous blossom of fire burst through the windows with a puffing sound. William Shepard, who was a United Press reporter, he was walking to Washington Square when he heard the explosion. Shards of razor-like window glass tinkled to the pavement. Shepard ran toward the building. A mounted policeman, James Meehan, was also talking with his superior, Lieutenant William Egan, in that square. A boy ran up and pointed at the poisonous plum rising from the ash building. Meehan spurred his horse towards the fire, passing Shepard on a dead run. Meehan, Shepard, and passerby James Cooper arrived at the sidewalk beneath the blaze only seconds apart. Something dark and rag-like came flying down. For an instant, it seemed like a bundle of cloth. Cooper thought someone was trying to salvage goods from the flames. Then another came hurling through a window. Because the wind spread out, it was no bundle. It was a young girl, then another, and still another, and a dozen more. John, John Mooney, a passerby, pushed out with the crowd forming beneath the inferno. He ran to a firebox at the corner of Green Street. The first alarm was recorded at 4.45. Meanwhile, Officer Meehan entered the lobby of the Ash Building and discovered that both passenger elevators were at the top of their shafts. The freight elevators were shut down and inoperable. Meehan ran to the stairs and started upward between floors 5 and 6. His way was blocked with terrified girls fleeing the fire. He flattened against a wall and let them squeeze by. Between the seven and eight floors, he stumbled over something in the stairwell. A girl had fainted. The screams of those behind her rose in pitch and volume as the flames advanced. Mooney picked up the girl. He held her close for a long instant, calming her fear. He set her down in the stairwell, her wobbly legs. The others followed. Mooney emerged on the eighth floor. The flames were very near. Two girls at the window waved frantically for help. A man had stumbled out of the darkness. He and Mooney dragged the girls back from the window and sent them down the stairs to safety. In inside the sweatshop, Mooney was met by the scene from Dante's Inferno. The only exits opened inward. Girls struggled to open the doors, but the crash of bodies from behind prevented it. Girls were trapped, trampled in a panic. The bodies were piling up before the doors, jamming them shut. In moments, many girls had been overcome by smoke and flames. There were no sprinklers in the building. There was a hose connected to a standpipe on each floor. Triangle's bosses had never wasted production time on fire drills. 
None of the panic-stricken girls knew how to turn on a hose. A few managed to get to the fire escape and run down to the sixth floor. The one girl broke a window and they re-entered the building. But then they found themselves trapped between a locked door and more people pushing in from behind. They pounded hysterically in a locked door on the other side of the door was Officer Mooney, who had begun working his way back down. While lacking keys or tools, he could not open the door. The girls behind it died where they stood. Others remained on the fire escape. A lucky few made it to the lowest rungs, where they dropped through a glass skylight into the courtyard. Firemen hacked down outside doors and rescued them minutes before they would have suffocated. The rest of the fire escape perished. The steel ladders, ladders were held by pins set into the mortar of the brick wall. The mortar began to crumble under the heat. Soon the weight of the girls crowding the fire escape pulled the pins from the wall. The whole fire escape came crushing down. A few girls escaped down the elevators, but after the first slow, terrified operators ran out the building to safety interpret passerby and Joseph Zito commandeered an elevator and began making rescue trips. Five towns went up the ninth floor and he saved over 130 girls. Another passerby, his name lost to history, operated a second elevator. He saved a dozen more. Then the first elevator jam jammed the tracks on which it rolled bent by the heat. Girls threw themselves down the shaft of the one still functioning elevator. Perhaps hoping to ride to safety atop the car. The impact of their falling bodies deformed the roof until it could no longer move down the shaft. All but one of the people on the tenth floor made it to safety by going over the roof to an adjacent building. But for the rest there was only choice between jumping and burning. Hair and dresses in flames, dozens jumped. Firemen held rope safety nets, commandeered blankets and mattresses to break the fall of hurtling bodies. It was useless. Girls were jumping in twos and trees, hands linked. The bodies arrived with such momentum that they sent firemen flying backwards with broken wrists. A few girls hit with such force that they penetrated the pavement to land in underground vaults. Some girls, their bodies battered to a pulp, lingered for hours, but not one jumper survived. The gutters literally ran red with fire hose water stained with blood. Windows on the lower floors shattered from the heat above. Flames were sucked downward and onward and inward. It took the fire department 18 minutes to respond with 35 fire engines. They were too late. Before hoses were attached to hydrants, the whole building was in flames. Extension ladders reached only to the 16th floor, to the sixth floor, excuse me. And despite water pressure rate uh, rise to emergency levels by local pumping stations, whole streams barely reached the seventh floor. In minutes, the building was a blackened ruin. When it was safe to enter, even hardened police blanched at the scenes of horror. 
Dozens of girls and women had died hunched over their sewing machines. Many bodies were charred into little more than lumps of black and bone. Ten minutes of terror, 148 died. At least 121 of these girls, at least 121 of these were girls. The injured went uncounted. More staggered off to their homes, unable to afford a doctor's care. The dead were lined up in rows at a makeshift morgue set up on a Hudson River pier. At least 200,000 people walked through rows of corpses, hoping to identify the dead. The Red Cross raised 100K dollars for relief. More than 80% went to families that were left without breadwinners. Despite a hastily passed city ordinance prohibiting any kind of demonstration, half a million New Yorkers silently marched to the Workmen's Circle Cemetery to watch unidentifiable bodies being interred in a mass grave. The Triangle Fire aroused the passions of the New York's working class as nothing had before or since. An investigation revealed the Triangle had suffered at least eight previous fires in nine years but had never held a fire drill. Joseph J. Ash, owner of the building, proved that the structure met all fire regulations when it was built in 1901. The city had never asked him to make changes. Ash settled 23 lawsuits for an average of $75 per life lost. Triangle's owners, Blank and Harris, collected almost 65k dollars in insurance for the loss of their business. It amounted of $444 per fatality. They pocketed every cent. It was clear Blank and Harris were at least morally responsible for the tragedy, but they were very well connected with Damani Hall. When they went on trial for manslaughter in December 1911, that judge, Damani appointee Thomas Crane, or by directed jurors, to acquit him, acquit him. After less than two hours of deliberations, the jury did just that. Escorted by five policemen, Blank and Harris left the courthouse by a side door, milling around the street hundreds of victims' relatives. A near riot ensued. The bosses escaped unharmed. But the victims of the Triangle Fire did not die in vain. A second fire destroyed the state capitol building in Albany only four days after the Triangle disaster. Two fires focused Albany's attention on the issue. A commission was created to investigate conditions in factories. The chairman was Robert F. Wagner, state senator and father of a future New York City mayor. The vice chairman was Alfred E. Smith. Together they made sure 
there would never be another New York tragedy like the Triangle Inferno. The commission was instrumental in pushing through sweeping reforms in the state labor code. These laws went far beyond fire prevention, including sanitation, working conditions, workmen's compensation, and industrial safety. In time, they also came to limit working hours and set minimum wages. New York state laws became the model for the entire nation. In the climate created by these reforms, labor unions emerged as powerful and effective voice for the working class. Some historians credit the Triangle disaster as the genesis for what later became the New Deal in the 1930s. The Triangle Shirtwaist Company was in the Ash Building, 22 Washington Place, at the northwest corner of the Green Street. There's a plaque on the side of the present structure, a 10-story NYU classroom building. I think I've been over there one time. Wow, 22 Washington Place, the picture, there's like big buildings over there. Um, the temporary morgue were where families claimed bodies of victims was at the Pier 64 between West 23rd and 24th Streets. The presence a site of a Department of Marine and Aviation parking garage. Good to know that. So it's more down um on the west side. I don't know how you even get there. Mm. Okay. Alright, so hopefully you enjoyed this story. It was kinda like creepy as hell. But I do have more. Sit tight. Now, I uh, found a new story, and it's from 1963. So it's from the 20th century. It was like, I don't know, it was 47, 48, um, like 68 years ago, something like that. The title goes, The Career Girl Slings. It was nice neighborhood, then and now, just east of Central Park. It was a nice building, with a doorman and several doctors and dentists on the first three floors. It was just the sort of place Janice Wiley, Emily Hofford, and Patricia Tolles wanted to live while they pursued their new careers in New York City. All three were young, recent college graduates. They shared a third floor apartment at 57 East, 88, and split the city-controlled 208 monthly rent in dollars. Wally was 21, and she studied acting at the prestigious neighborhood playhouse. For the summer of 1963, however, she decided that her true vacation was writing. Her true vacation. 
Like her father, Max Wiley, a noted advertising executive, her uncle, social critic and novelist, a generation of wipers, Philip Wiley, start Janice Wangel, a researcher's job at Newsweek. Emily Hofer was 23, the daughter of prominent Monopoly surgeon. It's a great time to get Domino's because right now, a recent graduate of Smith College. She was about to begin teaching in Valley Stream. She'd, she'd be moving in a few days to cheaper place with two former Smith classmates. Patricia Dole's 23 was a Tom Life Books researcher on the morning of August 28, Wednesday. She left the apartment about 9.30 to catch a bus to work. Hofer had some errands to run, but it was a warm, sultry day. There was plenty of time to do what needed to be done. Janice Wiley wasn't doing until 11. She slept late, and Wally didn't show up by noon. Her boss called the apartment. Wally had been late before, but usually she called in. Maybe he thought her co-workers she was ill. Nobody answered the phone. It was an unusual busy day. Martin Luther King Jr. had just arrived in Washington, D.C., at the head of West Throng, and Newsweek had mobilized its staff to cover the event. In the crash, nobody at the magazine had time to find out why one junior researcher hadn't turned up. Not until six that evening did anyone discover what had happened to Janice Wiley. Patricia Tolls returned from work at her usual time. She walked into the bedroom she shared with Wiley and saw a mess. The sheets had been stripped from Wiley's bed. Her belongings were scattered around. In the bathroom, Dolls found a carving knife. His 12-inch blade rested on a sink. She screamed. Finally, she pulled herself together and called the police. Then she called Janice's parents, Max and Isabel. They lived two blocks away. It really took Max five minutes to walk over. He was the first to find the bodies. They were in Hofer's room, near the window. They were bound back to back with strips torn from bed sheets. While it was nude, rollers were in her hair. She also been raped and stabbed many, many times. She was dead. Hofer's throat had been slit, the head all but severe from her body. She too had multiple stab wounds. Because of Janice's kinship with Philip and Max Wiley, there was enormous public interest in the case. And also because the victims were both young professionals, the press dubbed their murder, their murders, the career girl slings. Max Wiley was a man who controlled his public grief. As a result, there were some police who thought he had no feelings about the grisly death of his daughter. Because he had no feelings, 
The reason he was a suspect. Max Wiley had all the feelings one might expect of a bereaved parent. But he believed his feelings were private to displace the rage he felt about his loss. Max turned himself into a scholarly slouch. He boned up on forensic medicine, the better to understand the coroner's report on Janice and Emily's autopsies. He also went to some of his angst in series of magazine articles, Career Girl, Career Girl and Watch a Step, discussing measures for apartment security or moving around the city night or day. Meanwhile, the NYPD put 30 detectives on the case. They made few assumptions. Since Janice had lived in the neighborhood for years and Emily was recent arrival, police decided that if someone had been singled out for rape and murder, it must have been Janice. Emily had simply been unlucky. The police had little to go on. Some fingerprints were found in Janice's bedroom, and there was some indication that the murders might be connected to burglary. Since the kitchen window had been found open, another knife was found. It had been wiped, but not washed. Traces of blood remained on the hasp. A witness report a baby-faced stranger in an elevator around noon of the day of the murders. Behind an apartment house at 57 East 88th Street, there was a courtyard, and beyond there was a rear of the building at 50 East 89th Street. One lady, Helen, a third grade teacher at nearby PS6, had been looking out her window between 9 o'clock and 11.30 a.m. on the day of the murders. She recalled seeing a dark, stocky, wave-haired man, wavy-haired man, whom she took to to be a Puerto Rican standing in the courtyard. He was wearing a short-sleeved white shirt and brown slacks. Since he looked well-groomed and apparently unthreatening, Goldheimer didn't bother reporting him to the superintendent, the Lady Helen. Against the possibility that Janice or Emily might have injured the asylum, police ran follow-up checks on all 17 people admitted that day to Harlem Hospital. Less than a mile from the crime scene, it took hundreds of man hours. It turned up nothing. Police, police also investigated every patient of all six hospital psychiatrists. They found nothing of interest. Police checked into two suicides that took place on the day or day after the murders, both within a few blocks of the scene of the crimes. There were no links to the deaths of Janice and Emily. Then there was weird Harry Clark. Clark's vocation was burglary, and he was very good at it. By its nature, however, burglary is lonely work. A few months after the murders, Harry broke into an apartment of two pretty secretaries. Instead of stealing a TV set, typewriter, and camera, he left a love note and phone number in his picture. And of course, he was arrested. 
but his fingerprints matched none of those found in the career girl's apartment. He also passed a polygraph test, so Clark was charged only with attempted burglary and dropped as a suspect from the murder investigation. Beyond following these clues, all police could do was question every man they could find with any connection to either of the victims. After eight months, police were no closer to an arrest than they had been on the day of the murders. On the morning of April 23, 1964, some dude, George Whitmer Jr., 19, slender, quiet, not overly intelligent, was in a all-night laundromat where he sometimes slept to escape his alcoholic father's brutal rages. A police officer asked Whitmore about a rape attempt reported nearby the night before. The suspect, said the officer, was a dark-skinned black man, at least 5 feet 9 inches and around 165 pounds. Whitmore said he thought he might have seen such an individual running down the street the night before. The next day, police arrested Whitmore for the attack. Although he was light-skinned, weighed only 140 pounds, and stood but 5 feet 6, the victim, Elba Borrero, picked Whitmore out of the lineup. She said she thought he might be the man, but she wasn't sure. Police told Whitmore to yell, Shut up or I'll kill you. He did as he was told. The victim said she was now sure that Whitmore was the man who attacked her. Whitmore was charged with attempted rape and also with the rape and murder of Minnie Edmonds, which had occurred a few days earlier. While going through Whitmore's wallet, police found a photo of a young blonde woman. She looked like Janice Wiley. Police reasoned that if Whitmore had tried to rape one woman and had raped and killed another, he could be a career girl killer who had so long eluded him. Whitmore said he hadn't killed anyone or raped anyone. He said he'd found a picture in a garage dump. He kept it because he thought the girl was pretty. The police decided that Whitmer wasn't cooperating. They brought in a specialist in suspect cooperation, Joseph DePrima. Detective DePrima supervised two officers who beat Whitmer's backside and took turns kicking his legs. Then they punched him in the stomach a dozen of times. The Prima let Whitmore know that he had a friend right there, a friend who could stop the beatings, a friend who could get Whitmore a doctor, get him some food and water. All Whitmore had to do was help his friend out a little, help him by remembering how he had raped and stabbed those two white girls on 88th Street last August 28. The girl said the Prima had been caught pretty bad, but they were okay now, and they had forgiven their assailant. The beatings would stop, added the prima, when Whitmore remembered that he was the guy who had cut them. After two days of almost non-stop kicks and punches, Whitmore's memory improved. He recalled breaking into an apartment. He recalled robbing Janice's purse and seeing her come out of the bathroom in nothing but a towel and raping her and stabbing her, and stabbing her the other girl, Emily. He remembered breaking the knives he used to stab them. 
then washing the pieces before getting rid of them. When the beating stopped, another detective took Whitmore's confession. He answered 116 questions in 14 minutes, answered them with the help of other detectives, who corrected him when he made a mistake about what he was confessing to. The next day, Whitmore was told to confess again, this time to assistant DA Peter Coste. It was the longer murder's confession in the history of New York's criminal law, running to 594 questions. Of these, 244 were answered yes or no, not counting a break of an hour and 13 minutes. The lapse time for this marathon confession was mere 59 minutes, but in none of the 594 questions was Whitmore asked directly if he had or hadn't killed the two girls. Whitmore went to court for arraignment on murder charges. He had no legal counsel in all the time police had questioned him before accepting a plea. The judge asked Whitmore if he had a lawyer. Whitmore said no. Do you intend to get a lawyer? asked judge. Yes. When will you have a lawyer of your own choice? He can't afford a lawyer, said one of the detectives flanking Whitmore. Let him speak for himself, said the judge. Is there any lawyer in court here now? Glancing around the room, the judge selected Jerome Lefton, a rookie defense lawyer. He asked Lefton if he would represent Whitmore, and Lefton stepped up beside him. The judge charged Whitmore with the murders of Janice Wiley and Emily Hovard, thus he learned that Janice and Emily had not forgiven him, and that they were dead. Whitmore was also charged with the rape and murder of Minnie Edmonds. The judge gave him 10 minutes to speak with his attorney. Lefton asked Whitmore if he had killed the three women. No, said Whitmore. The police made me say all those things. Lefton was sure that more experienced attorney would replace him by the time Whitmore went to trial. He wanted his client's statement about the police on the record. So he did a very unusual thing when it was time to enter a plea. Lefto told judge, I'm the first person the defendant has had the opportunity to discuss this matter with. Beside the police officials, the defendant informs me that he made certain statements yesterday. He now states to me that the statements and confessions pertaining to all three crimes were made under duress and threats and now he recants all confessions and statements made. The prosecutor, angry, rose to his feet, suggested that officers were arrested with more or to be commended before they find police work. The judge toward this novel sentiment. He took the occasion to praise the efforts of New York Police Department to observe the citizens have much more confidence in the city law enforcement than they may have had a couple of days ago in a relation of these two major crimes. Whitmore was returned to jail in handcuffs, left of remain in counsel. Before he came to trial, senior officials in DA's office learned that their case against Whitmore was very weak indeed. Aside from the repudiated confession, his fingerprints didn't match those from the dead death scene. They also knew that the photo in his wallet had indeed come from a garbage dump, 
and was in the likeness of victim Janice Wiley. They knew because they had located the woman in the picture. She had confirmed throwing it out exactly where Whitmore said he'd found it. To strengthen the murder case against Whitmore, the DA decided to first try him for the attempted rape of Elba Borrero. She had identified him in a lineup and despite confining misgivings to a close relative about this identification, she was the sole witness. The Korea girl murders had occurred eight months before the attempted rape. The rape murder of Minnie Edmonds had occurred several months later and the attempted rape last. But a Whitmore could come to trial for Edmonds' murder as a convicted felon, he'll be less conv convincing when he dis disavowed his murder confession. So paperwork on Wally Hufford got lost. The case slipped back in line. Whitmore went to trial for attempted rape. He was convicted because of the victim swore he had been the perpetrator. Four months the career girl case made frequent headlines in all New York's newspapers. The Daily News, with a circulation of well over 2.2 million, led the pack. And the Daily News was a big fan of the NYPD. Their stories were heavily slanted against Whitmore. When he was convicted in a Borrero case, public expectations that he would also be convicted for the career girls rose to a, f a fever pitch. There was a lot of pressure on the DA's office for conviction. And of course, the DA's office had created the situation out of whole cut by announcing Whitmore's guilt. But even before Whitmore was tried for attempted rape, police investigator John Lynch had located three witnesses who could prove that on the day of the career girl murders, Whitmore was in a lobby of a Willow, Will, Wildwood, New Jersey. There's a hotel. He was uh, watching television. He had watched Martin Luther King's March on Washington. That he went dancing. He could not have killed the career girls. So the NYPD knew that Whitmore was innocent. They also knew who was guilty. On October 9, 1964, a junkie named Nathan Delaney confessed to knifing another attic in self-defense. When police uh, spoke to him, he told them that on August 28, 1963, baby junkie, uh, convict Richard Ropes, he was 20, had confessed to the Korea girl murders on the very day it happened. Covered with blood, he had confessed to icing two dames confessed to the one man he could trust Delaney his heroin supplier since age 14 the man who had hooked him Delaney told his story to assistant DA Peter Coste the same official who had heard Whitmore's confession according to Delaney Rose had confessed to forcing one of his victims to perform fellatio on him he asked Delaney if there was any way police could link sperm in the girl's throat back to him. This was a detail of the crime that only a few investigators were aware of.
Oh my goodness. Delaney asked for and got total immunity on the murder charges he was being held for in return for giving police full details of the crimes Rose had confessed. But Delaney was a three-time loser, a known addict and pusher. And Rose had an alibi supplied by his mother and neighbors. Without further evidence, police decided they couldn't hold Rose, but they were sure he was the killer. Despite this, the New York DA, Frank Hogan, went ahead with, with Morris trials. He was convicted on all counts and sentenced to die in an electric chair. But some police began working on Rose. It uh, took many months, but eventually detectives were able to hear Rose again confess to Delaney. This time, the heroin dealer wore a secret microphone linked to a tape recorder. Robles was convicted of the career girl murders and sentenced to a minimum of 26 years in prison. It took George Whitmore four trials in nine years to gain his freedom. Not only 19, in uh, 1973 did the Brooklyn DA agree to drop the last of the charges and attempted rape. Whitmore then sued the New York City for $10 million for wrongful imprisonment. His suit also revealed that DA's office had also evidence that could have cleared him of the attempted rape long before he was uh, first tried for it. He was settled on the he settled the case in 1979, and they gave him 400k dollars, much of which went to pay his attorneys. And in a few years, he was as broke as the night in 1964 when he slept in a laundromat. Robles' minimum sentence was shortened to 20 years by new parole law in 1984, but not until he came before the parole board for a second time in 1988 did he admit to murdering Janice Wiley and Emily Hofford. Parole, parole was not granted. Janice and Emily were not the only victims of the career girl slings. Janice's mother, Isabel, died of a brain tumor in 1968. Family members believe her end was hastened by her mental condition. Janice's oldest sister, Pamela, exhausted, depressed, and stressed out, died of influenza in the winter of 1968. In 1975, Max Wiley, overcome with inner grief, that time could never heal checked into a, a Fredericksburg, Virginia motel room and blew his brains out. The police would torture a confession from George Whitmer, however, were never punished. Nor were those in a DA's office who went ahead with the prosecution, though they, um, they knew him to be innocent. The publicity surrounding the case, however, may have aided a successful 1968 campaign to abolish the New York's death penalty. Moreover, Whitmer's case laid a groundwork for the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on Miranda's case in 1966. Because of Miranda, police from coast to coast have since been far more scrupulous about suspects' access to attorneys and in advising them of their constitutional right to remain silent. Janice Wiley and Emily Hofer were murdered in their apartment at 57 East 88th Street. Today is the site on the north side of 88 
street between Park and Madison Avenues in an underground parking garage. I knew it was my arms crazy, man. Yeah. Like we had like a therapy all day somewhere. And it was so creepy and I kept I went to go because the, the hospital was really good, you know, clinic and everything. And they told me, No, we're gonna have to you know, like change the therapy, something therapist, whatever. I didn't want to speak to another person all over again everything from beginning so good thing I didn't because it was like later like a couple of people it's like the place you gotta climb up there it was kind of like haunted <coughs> excuse me no story from 1927 Second-rate monsters. Albert Snyder led a charm life on night in 1926. 44-year-old art editor with a magazine motorboating lay sleeping while his wife Ruth turned on the gas in a bedroom and she slipped out of the house leaving him to asphyxiate. Miraculously, Snyder woke up. He smelled the gas, turned it off, and went back to sleep, never suspecting his wife had tried to kill him. So Ruth, 32, tried again. Same result. Ruth could see she had to be a little more in innovative she was going to collect the 96k dollars in life insurance her husband carried so when he was in garage turning the family car with the engine running roof locked the door soon Albert passed out from carbon monoxide poisoning roof playing the lovingly concerned wife discovered his body and called the fire department Albert came away with nothing more serious than a headache. Ruth started looking for another way to kill him. She put bichloride or mercury into his whiskey. Albert sipped. He sniffed. He poured out the libation. A few days later, Ruth tried again. We're really going to have to switch bootleggers, said Albert, dumping the mercury cocktail down the sink. When Albert took ill, Ruth improvised. She added a powerful dose of a narcotic to his prescription medicine. Albert had a long snooze and woke up feeling much refreshed. Ruth doubled the dosage and tried again. Never suspecting a thing, Albert recovered from his extended illness. Ruth Snyder was born in Norway in 1895 and came to America as a little girl. She was really ambitious, still in her teens when she started working as a knife, knife telephone operator. 
She studied bookkeeping and shorthand by the day. Then she got a sec secretarial job. In 1917, Ruth married her boss, Albert, and they had a baby, Lorraine, in 1918. But Ruth soon became bored with her humdrum housewife's existence, and she resented the way her husband idolized his late ex fiance whose photo gazed down at her from a bedroom wall. She began looking for a way out. All the time that Ruth was trying to murder Albert, she was cheating on him too. It all started when a friend fixed her up with a blind date. H. Jude Gray traveled in women's underwear, that is. He sold corsets on the road for being Jolly Corset Company. A mouse of a man, Graves was mesmerized by Ruth's powerful personality. The Ruth was plain in appearance. He liked the way she looked and the way she took charge of things. Soon he was calling her Mumsy and McQueen. She called him Lover Boy. In 1926, they began meeting at the Waldorf Astoria at noon. While little Lorraine fussed over solo lunch around the magnificent lobby under the watchful eyes of the concierge, Mumsy and the lover boy were upstairs between the sheets. By February 1927, Rue had run out of accidental ways to do away with Albert, so she enlisted Drew Gray's help in an elaborate plot. In the small hours of March 20, Ruth and Albert returned home from a bridge party, and Albert had a few drinks and was sleepy, went to bed. What he didn't know was that Drew Gray was hiding in the house. When Albert's snores had reached the proper pitch, Ruth slid out of the bed and fetched Gray. He had a... Um, cast iron such weight he weighed at five pounds Gray brought it down on Albert's head with as much force as he could muster they got Albert's attention he woke up he struggled with Gray the such weight fell on the floor Albert cried out to Ruth for help she grabbed the weight and took another swing at, at his skull that shot him up but Albert was still alive so Ruth poured a little chloroform in a rag and put it over his nose and mouth. And for good measure, she took a length of a picture wire, wrapped it around Albert's neck and strangled him. Albert's long run for, of luck had come to an end. When he was good and dead, Mumsy Root and lover boy Gray tied him up, and not too tightly. They actually tied Mumsy roof up not too tightly for good measure lower, lower boy put a gag on the new widow Gray emptied Albert's wallet to make the murder look like a burglary but Ruth didn't quite trust lover boy instead of letting him take her jewelry she stashed it away in a place she was certain nobody would ever look under the mattress
five hours after Aubrey had expired, Ruth crawled over to Lorraine's room and woke her up. The nine-year-old ran to the neighbors for help. First, the neighbors called the police, and they came over to help Ruth. She refused to let anyone tie her until the police arrived, but they couldn't help noticing how loose her bones were. The bereaved widow told detectives that an extremely tall, mustachioed man had invaded the Snyder's room. A, bur bur a burglar, plainly, he wore a bandana to cover his face, but he had come off in a struggle. He was on the floor in the room. After killing Albert and stealing his cash, the burglar took her jewelry. Then he hit her over the head with something. She was unconscious for five hours. Police really didn't believe her. The medical examiner couldn't find even a small lump on Ruth's blonde head and no bruises. There was the matter of her loose bonds when had taken Houdini to wriggle out them in five hours. Police searched the house. They found a bloody sash weighing in a toolbox. They found a blood-stained pillow slip and a hamper of dirty clothes. They found her jewels. We decided that she forgotten that she hid him away for safety. What the police didn't find was any sign of forced entry to the Snyder house. Increasingly dubious about her story, they conducted a second search of the premises. This time, they found a man's typing on the floor under, under the, um, underneath the bed. It had a, a monogram, J.G. Among Ruth's papers was concealed check for $200 made out to J. Jude Gray. Her address book, she listed the names of 28 men. One was her lover boy, A. Jude Gray. So police inspector Arthur Carey took a wild guess. He arrested Ruth Snyder. He let her stew in jail for a few hours. Meanwhile, Drew Gray had made his escape to Manhattan. On the way, he asked two different men which bus he should take. One was uniform for a policeman. When Gray got to the city, he caught a cab. He took a driver a nickel on a $3.50 um, fare. There was no way that Cabby would forget Gray's face. But perhaps Gray didn't want him to. Gray was arrested before noon. By this time, the police had found a safe deposit box in Ruth's maiden name. It had only the double indemnity insurance policy on Albert Snyder's life. After Gray was in custody, the police told Ruth that he had confessed. Confessed that she had planned it all, that she had, that she had mesmerized him into helping. But Ruth wasn't buying, she told police that Gray planned it, that she hadn't even been in the room when he bludgeoned and strangled Albert. Then the police told Gray that Mumsy was trying to blame it all on him. Gray responded with detailed confession. Ruth was the mastermind. He had simply been putty in her strong hands. New York's tabloid press loved the case. They began calling Ruth the granite woman. The case turned into Ruth Snyder versus Jude Gray.
each trying to incriminate the other. Trial was sensation. And testimony by accused murderers contained such undisguised greed and unrepentant anger. Among the courtroom watchers were evangelists Billy Sunday, Aime Sample McPherson, philosopher historian Will Durant, and theatrical impresario David Belasco. Bruce Snyder and Jude Gray were each convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to die in an electric chair at Sing Sing in jail, awaiting the outcome of the appeals. Each of the killers wrote their memoirs. Bruce Snyder received 164 offers of marriage. On January 12, 1928, the granite woman and lava boy were electrocuted. They were in four minutes apart. Bruce Snyder was to enjoy far more fame and death than she had in life. Daily News photographer Thomas Howard, one of the official witnesses, smuggled a tiny camera into the death chamber. It was strapped to his ankle, string inside his pants, leg, ran through a hole in Howard's pocket. The moment of electric, oh, electrocuting Howard made two consecutive exposures on a camera single plate of him. Of film. The Daily News ran Howard's hor horrifying photo of electrical current cursing through Ruth Snyder's body on page one of its morning edition. It remains among the most famous images of tabloid journalism. Albert Snyder was murdered at 93-27-222nd Street, Queens Village. This is a generous three-story white frame house with an attic on the southeast corner of 93rd Road. A pink flamingo and a statue of Jesus contend for space on the lawn behind a picket fence. And as, as it was 70 years ago, this is a quiet, prosperous community. Snyder and Gray often met for amorous, amorous interludes at the luxurious Waldorf Astoria Hotel on the southeast corner of 49th Street and Park Avenue. Wow. Wow, and then it actually succeeded in killing him and he didn't even suspect it is. She's actually trying to kill him. How crazy. Right now, I'm super hungry. I'm going to cook something and maybe I will be back hopefully um, one of my listeners actually figured that I'm here later